We're looking at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3 this afternoon. Well, let's read the passage as you see it before you. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now at this point in the development of Paul's letter to the Colossians, he shifts his mood, and I'm punning on the mood of the Greek verbs. We also have those moods in English grammar, though we're not always familiar with them. But there's also a change in the atmosphere of the epistle. And virtually all interpreters have noticed this change in atmosphere or tone or mood, which we will describe in detail. You have on your handout sheet a number of terms which are synonymous going down on the left-hand side and synonymous going down on the right-hand side. That is, this this is the vocabulary which is used to describe this shift in mood in the literature and in commentaries and even in exposition and preaching. So you'll learn a little bit about the vocabulary of, shall we say, analyzing this material. And I hope it'll be clear to you uh, by the time I'm done with it. The shift is, first of all, a shift from the indicative to the imperative. That is, the mood that indicates or asserts the narrative facts in redemptive history. That is, the narrative facts in the narrative history of the person and work of the Son of God. And its relationship to mandates or commands or obligations or imperatives which that redemptive historical narrative person and work requires from those who claim it, belong to it, or profess it. Now, this grammar in the Greek is quite explicit. That is, when one learns the basics of the verb system in the Greek language, one is taught to recognize the clear indications in the language between the indicative mood and the imperative mood. Now, the indicative mood, as I already alluded, is the mood of assertion of facts. It's the indication of the truths of objective reality. It is the mood of acts of redemptive history in history. In other words, in this case where Paul is emphasizing the redemptive historical acts of Christ, namely his death and his resurrection, he is emphasizing in the indicative mood of the verb those facts and assertions as objective realities. We have the same thing in our English And you can see even from the English translation of the words in these three verses, in a moment we will uh, go through and identify the mood of those verbs. 
but at any rate, you will be aware of that mood, though you may never have used the terminology to refer to it. Nonetheless, in the discussion of the Greek text of this epistle, or the Greek text of any epistle, or the Greek text of any part of the New Testament, this grammar is in the background. These questions of the mood of the verb are in the background. Now, the imperative mood is a distinct mood. It is the mood of duties appropriate to the life folded into the redemptive historical story. The assertions of the facts are followed by the performance of the acts. The <clears throat> declaration of the reality is followed by the obligation to live the reality. The indicative is related to the imperative as cause to effect or perhaps better as a harmonious and inseparable sequence. There is no indicative without an imperative in the life of the believer and there is no imperative without a preceding indicative in the life of a Christian believer even as that is true in the redemptive historical story. All right, now let's then look for the moods in these three verses, and let's see if we can identify some of those <coughs> verbal categories as we look at the verbs that start with verse 1. What's the first verb you come to there? Anyone can speak it out. Uh, uh, have? All right, that, that's part of a, a perfect tense. So what's the verb there? It's actually a helper. Raised up, raised up yes, raised up. Now, uh, Ben, is that indicative or is that imperative? That's the indicative. That's a statement or assertion of the redemptive historical fact based upon the fact of the resurrection of Christ. All right, the next verb. Anyone? Keep seeking. Do any of your versions say it a little differently? Seek. Just seek. <clears throat> it's a little easier to see the mood in seek, but the New American Standard has translated it as a present, and it has the idea literally in the Greek of keep on. So that's the reason they put the keeping in there, even though it's not literally in the verb. So what kind of a word do we have there? What's the mood of seek or keep seeking. That is an imperative, all right? So we see this relationship even within the first two verbs of this uh, uh, verse, the indicative followed by the imperative. You have been raised, seek or keep seeking the things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. All right, now that last verb in the first verse, seated at the right hand of God, what mood is that? Indicative. That's indicative again. Very good. Now, coming to verse 2. Why don't you tell me what's going on there in terms of the mood of the verbs? Marge? Yes, set your mind. Your set is another imperative. There are no other verbs on in that line. And what about verse 3? 
How many verbs in that verse? Yes, there are two verbs. Died and hidden, and what mood are they in? They are in the indicative. They are declarations of the facts or the objective reality of what has occurred in the history of redemption. All right, so we note that Paul is beginning in this chapter to use imperatives. He has not used imperatives prior to this point. And so this division within the apostle's mind is used as a way of structuring this particular epistle or letter. And it's sometimes carried over into other letters. In other words, that the style of the New Testament epistles is to have an indicative section at the beginning and an imperative section at the ending of the letters. That's not actually true. It is true in this case. It is true in some other cases. But we need to remember that it is not true in every case of a New Testament epistle or Paul's epistles for that matter. Nonetheless, the thing itself will be present in all the epistles because wherever the imperative occurs in any epistle, it will always be related to the indicative, or at least we should think of it that way. Now, there are some other words there that I've listed as synonyms for the indicative imperative. And as you go down those, I'll make just a brief comment. The indicative is a declarative. I've already used that term or an assertive mood. It asserts a objective fact. The imperative is prescriptive. That is, it prescribes a kind of reaction or response or obedience to that which has been declared. It can also be described in terms of instruction. The indicative is instructing us in the facts of Christianity or the facts of the life of Christ or the facts of the biblical story. The imperative is the admonition to live by those facts or to put those facts into practice. Sometimes this division is called a difference between the doctrinal and the hortatory sections of a letter. That is the doctrinal, meaning that which describes the doctrines of Christianity, and the hortatory or exhortative which is the appeal to follow in the light of that doctrine or to live out the light of that doctrine. We don't use that word hortatory so much anymore, but nonetheless it is an expression of do that which you have professed to be or be that which you have professed to be. We exhort you, we stir you up to good works, etc., that kind of language. So the imperative has that hortatory force. It's an exitory, keep on seeking. Seek those things, keep on seeking. And to see why the New American Standard chose that present force of that imperative. It is a present aorist. It is a present imperative in the Greek. All right, now more popularly, the indicative is sometimes called the teaching section of a letter or the teaching section a Bible teaching the facts of Christianity or the facts that Paul is recording or remembering. And it stands in relationship to the morals or the ethics or the behavior. The study of ethics is the study of moral behavior. The imperative 
carries with it the appeal to moral living, ethical living, uh, the uh, proper or appropriate Christian behavior. We could even say appropriate human behavior, but Christianity has a distinctive moral or ethical axis. Now, the last of the synonyms in this category are the two which are most technically used in the scholarly literature, the didactic and the paranetic. Now, didactic is not too hard to understand. It comes from the Greek word didasko, which means to teach. So didactic is referring to that which is being taught by the indicative mood, taught as the facts or the reality of the Christian life and the Christian story and the Christian uh, fact, the Christian uh, deeds. Paranetic is a uh, taken from a Greek word which means to exhort or to appeal or to urge. So it's a, a synonym of hortatory that we used above. It does not appear in the New Testament, but it is a term which is used to describe Greco-Roman rhetoric and it is used in that type of study. And so it's migrated over into New Testament studies particularly to be a term which is taught, which is <clears throat> joined with didactic in order to express this relationship between the indicative and imperative mood. <clears throat> All right, so we have shifted the mood of the epistle. We've moved from the more formally didactic to the uh, practically paranetic. And now we're going to be thinking about the relationship between uh, the Christian factual story or factual history and the ethical behavior that is a proper response to that factual history. Now, because the apostle relates the two of them here, these two moods, indicative and the imperative, in fact, he does so within the space of one verse, we need to think about this relationship. In other words, we've divided these terms into two categories. Does that mean that, well, you get to stage one when you learn all the facts about the doctrines of the Christian faith, and then after you get that down, then you move to stage two and you start to think about what your behavior should be. <clears throat> now, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's not saying you know, in this relationship you must get these facts down first and then you start thinking about how you put them into practice. <clears throat> this is an inseparable relationship. Wherever the indicative exists, the imperative exists as well. <clears throat> there it's like love and marriage. It's a uh, unbreakable bond. <clears throat> and so we can't separate these two as if they're two stages. We can separate them for the purpose of discussion. But the whole Christian life is a life indicative hyphen imperative. It's an indicative imperative life. It's an unbreakable relationship. And that's one of the apostles' points here in putting the two moods together in that first verse. He's saying, since you've been raised up with Christ, then there is no other alternative, there is no other reality to your life except that which causes you to seek those things above. It goes with the territory. It goes with the facts. The facts direct you to those things above, and those things above direct you to the kind of moral behavior that is appropriate to a Christian lifestyle. 
Now, I want to fill that in later on, but right now I want you to notice, <clears throat> though we put these two categories in columns underneath one another and there's a space in between them, I don't want you to think of them as rigidly separate as if you've got to go through two stages of Christian progress. It's not the point of the epistle. It's not the point of the apostle. They belong inseparably together. There's a holistic Christian life. That holistic Christian life is lived in the indicative and imperative mood, in the indicative and imperative state. That's what a true Christian life is, and the apostle is reinforcing that by the way he arranges the verb moods here in verse 1. All right, now, I've talked about the fact that there's a narrative paradigm here. We've done this as we've gone through the epistle the paradigm of the inseparable aspects of the redemptive historical biography of Christ himself and its impact on Paul, and then from Paul, its impact upon the Colossian church. With respect to this indicative-imperative relationship, the indicative facts and acts are united to the imperative morals and behavior. Christian redemption is united to Christian ethics. The aspects of faith are followed by the aspects of obedience. They are inseparably connected. The aspects of grace are inseparably related to the aspects of works of morality or deeds of moral obedience and propriety. The aspect of the love of Christ is inseparably related to the love of keeping Christ's commandment. The indicative, if you love me, the imperative, keep my commandments. There's a Johannine indicative imperative tandem. So you can find it in John's gospel and in his epistles as well as in Paul's epistles. And you can find it elsewhere as well, but there's a two places where it's emphatic. Yes, Reba. Faith relates to the indicative as obedience relates to the imperative. And is this the way that the Greek mind thinks? Or is this what you're saying as a Christian should live? No, this this style can be found in Greco-Roman literature. I mentioned that it's the the paranetic language is used to describe this pattern in, in Greek secular literature. Though that uh, that uh, world of uh, <clears throat> reality and obligation is not peculiar to the Christian world, <clears throat> okay? So it, it's common also in the Greek world, in Greek philosophy, Greek ethics, etc. Uh, the issue for us is how is that uh, seen in Christian context? When when we place the history of redemption into the, the reality of the facts. What does that do to the indicative and imperative? Go ahead. Well, in the Greek mind, is it separable? Where I understand in the Christian mind, it isn't separable. If you love me, you will obey me. No, it's not separable even in the Greek mind because they would think of the results of their peroration or their oratory resulting in a hortatory appeal to their audience. So it has, it has a rhetorical background. So it's not unique to Paul, but uh, he's 
there's this debate about how much he's dependent upon Greco-Roman rhetoric, and I don't want to get into that. I simply observe that he uses these moods because that's the way you would express the relationship between fact and act. Uh, I, I think that this text in particular shows it clearly, and the uh, indicative imperative relation here, even in verse 1, is particularly vital. All right, now, if we begin with the imperative here in verse 1, which is to seek the things above, we ask ourselves, what does the apostle mean by the word above? That's not a trick question. Go ahead, Ben. Okay, let's define it from the, from the words in the verse. Where Christ is, yes. The above is where Christ is. So, where is Christ? From the text. At the right hand of God. Where is the right hand of God? Okay? There we go. All right. So, you see, we're moving from the very literal aspect of the text itself to understand that above for him is where Christ is. At the very moment he's writing this epistle, Christ is at is is in that dimension. He is in that reality. Where is it? It is at the right hand of God. Where is the right hand of God? It is in the heavenly realm. It is in the kingdom of heaven, as Paul says in this epistle earlier in the first chapter. All right, so we're talking about a relationship in the imperative which is oriented to heaven in some way. The indicative is also related to heaven in some way, and we usually get that. For instance, you can see it in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's a very realistic present indicative. <clears throat> but we don't tend to think of our ethics or our morals or our ordinary behavior as in some way related to heaven. So, when we're talking about these uh, <clears throat> ethical realities, and we might pause for a moment and skim down the rest of the verses, or a few more verses in this third chapter. For instance, <clears throat> if you go down to verse 3, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, or <clears throat> you have died to impurity and passion. These are ethical uh, imperatives. Verse 8 Put away anger and wrath. That's an ethical imperative. Verse 9, do not lie. That's an ethical imperative. <clears throat> so he's breaking out into these ethical imperatives, to these mandates, to these commandments, to these demands that the facts of the life of Christ and the death and the resurrection of Christ require of those that profess to believe that and to follow him. <clears throat> so... Uh, <clears throat> The, the, the point here is that the orientation that the apostle places in this inseparable connection between the indicative imperative is that he's orienting us to heaven, both with respect to the indicative present and the imperative also present. 
present relationship between the morals of the Christian and heaven's own morals. Yes, heaven is a moral place. Heaven is a place where ethics are in practice. Heaven is a place where behavior is observable. So the apostle is now opening up this issue of what is it about our behavior here that is to be informed by the behavior there. He's placing you in the same relationship that Jesus places you in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus makes the statement over and over again in Matthew 5 of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to talk about thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not bear false witness. Jesus is placing the ethical life of a Christian in an eschatological context. He is saying that your ethical and moral behavior is to be informed and related to the eschatological hope and the eschatological reality that belongs to you because of Christ, because of the kingdom of heaven coming into your life and soul. Your actions are to be informed by that arena. Once again, the moral prescriptions that we are going to examine in detail later on in this study, the moral prescriptions are directed to the realm above in some way. They are directed to heaven in some way. These commandments that we have already noted in verses seven and eight, verses eight and nine are united to the heavenly realm where Christ is now. All right, now, how are these morals? How are these imperatives? How are these commandments related to heaven, to where Christ is, to the right hand of God above? They are reflections of the morals in that heavenly arena. They are a mirror of the commandments which are obeyed in that heavenly kingdom at God's right hand. They are an image of the ethics of Christ and the moral character of God in his right hand. God himself has a moral character. Christ himself has a moral character in his glorification. The Holy Spirit has a moral character. Those three persons of the Godhead have a moral character by virtue of their very being, their very existence. They have never been other than moral in their character. From all eternity and unto all eternity, they are moral beings, perfectly moral beings. And the arena... in which they abide, the kingdom of heaven in which they abide, partakes of that moral character that they have. 
There is no one in that heavenly kingdom who is immoral. No one. Because that would mean that there was something in God's perfect abode which was contrary to him. And nothing can abide in that abode contrary to him. We know that sin can't abide there, and therefore sin must be removed, covered, paid for, atoned for, etc. But that's also true of moral behavior. No immoral behavior can exist in that arena. Now the apostle here is saying, I want you to understand the relationship between your life here in the indicative state and the moral, the moral behavior that you perform in this indicative state because I want you to realize that you are to think of your moral state here as you think of your moral state in heaven perfectly. That's a council of despair, you say. Nobody can make that grade. The apostle knows that. That's the reason he sees keep seeking it. We usually call that the work of sanctification. We usually call that the work of increasing holiness and conformity to the will of God, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, as the apostle puts it elsewhere. We usually talk about that as sin or salvation results in sanctification from sin. Redemption results in reformation of behavior, of moral acts and moral thoughts. Paul is being helpful here. Why? Why do I say he's being helpful here? Even as Jesus is being very helpful in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about live your moral life as we would live it in heaven itself. Why is that helpful? It looks like it's an impossible suggestion. Because it's not taking your moral cue from the culture in which you live or from the moral standards of your world. For as you know, even now, in this year 2017, those morals are rapidly changing. They are changing even as we sit here and talk about them. What we have once thought, even at the human level, was good is now being defined as evil. And what we once thought was evil or wicked is now being defined as virtuous and righteous. We have even <clears throat> defined, we have even determined a way of referring to this transfer, transformation of moral actions. It's called virtue signaling. And now the elites, now the experts, now those that are in control are defining what is virtuous and what is not. So <clears throat> the apostle is reminding us, reminding his Colossians, even in the Greco-Roman pagan world, he is reminding his readers that there is this challenge, there is this clash between the relationship of the indicative now present in this world life and the standards of this world. That is not the barometer by which you measure the way you behave. The barometer by which you measure the way you behave is the morals of heaven itself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder, thou shalt not kill. But in heaven, 
You cannot only com- not commit the act, you cannot commit the thought. You cannot nurture or cherish the thought. Jesus is digging down deeper, but he's placing it in that context of heaven's own behavior. Your mind in heaven will be incapable of a murderous thought or desire. Even as your mind in heaven will be incapable of spawning or motivating a murderous act. Live that way now. Live your moral life in the light of God's moral heavenly character. Now, you see, that reorients the whole discussion of behavior. It reorients it into an arena in which the world will never comprehend, will not understand, will even hate and despise. But it is your separation unto holiness in terms of your ongoing and progressive sanctification that you will now think of your behavior Think of your responses, think of your moral actions in terms of what is heaven's character. What is that act or thought in relationship to heaven's character? Adultery in heaven, God forbid, then you cannot commit adultery here on earth because your sexual life is informed by the purity and chastity and fidelity of heaven's own arena. You get the point, I trust. Jesus and Paul reorienting the ethical discussion, reorienting the question about how do we act as human beings. More specifically, how do we behave as Christian human beings? And now he's given us a key, as Jesus had given us a key in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't believe that the apostle was explicitly building upon what Jesus had said, though it's not impossible that he knew about it and was informed of it. He has his own way of expressing this, which is harmonious with Christ's way of expressing it. They come to the same conclusion, namely, that morals begins with God. It begins with God's ethical character. You, in your daily life, you, In your walk out in this world, you, in your behavior, you are to mirror God's ethical and moral character in your actions. A tall order, but nonetheless, that which your heart, your will, your desire, your inclination seeks, presses after Praise God, make me more and more separated from sin and more and more devoted to righteousness by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. This balance and orientation is extremely helpful for those in confusion about behavior, for those who are... uh, wondering what a Christian should do in certain situations, uh, wondering how they understand the prescriptions of the New Testament in the life and the light of the grace which is announced in that very same document. This is a very helpful, shall we say, even pastoral approach to Christian behavior. And it should not be 
absent from the counseling room. It should not be absent from the room where discipline is being administered. It should be wonderfully and and cheerfully offered as an orientation to help those who are confused, who are tempted by sin, who have fallen into sin. It is a way of drawing them up a little higher, and I say that intentionally. Bring them up in their problems, in their difficulties, in their temptations. Bring them up to that heavenly Jerusalem, that mountain which is not touched and burning with flame, that mountain which is on high, according to the writer of Hebrews 12. Bring them up to that mountain and let them think about life in that arena and their need to reflect that life in this arena. Yes, the now and not yet is there. The anticipation and consummation is there. But they interface and interreact. They reflect upon one another in this most wonderful way to help us, to help us as we live this side of heaven as if we were living there already. All right, so Paul is wonderfully and helpfully unfolding the relationship between our earthly keeping of God's commandments as an anticipation and delight of how we will perfectly keep God's commandments in heaven. You will make the goal. Yes, you will get there eventually. Yes, you will achieve what you seek to do now, even here now imperfectly, there you will achieve it perfectly by his grace and mercy and kindness and by his sanctifying influence in your life. Your earthly moral behavior, a reflection of the moral behavior of heaven, which you will enter perfectly when you enter glory. One final point at this point, and that is that none of God's moral character will be abolished when you enter heaven. None of God's moral character will be abolished when you enter heaven. You'll be perfected in that moral and ethical behavior. So that Paul is exhorting, yea, commanding you and me to live now morally as you will live not yet perfectly in the light of heaven's pure and holy ethical behavior. Seek those things above. Not only the reality of the Christ who is seated at the right hand, the reality of the Christ who died for your sins and rose again for your justification, not only the reality of those assertions and indications of the facts, but seek those things above which are moral and ethical and prescriptive and commanded in nature because that's what you are going to live when you get there. Begin living it 
now. Your moral thoughts and desires oriented, informed, directed to heaven's moral character and arena. If you remember nothing else from this series on Colossians, remember that, treasure that. Go back and read Matthew 5 and think about that in terms of the way Jesus is expressing it. But this is a life-changing, it's even a Christian-changing orientation. And it is, in my opinion, the central key to progress in sanctification in the Christian life. Oh, yes, you can point the bony finger at people and tell them, you need to be doing X, Y, Z. But tell them without the bony finger to think about what heaven's arena is like and what are the moral standards of that dimension and how the Lord Jesus has those moral standards in perfection. And he wants you to come into that arena so you can share that moral perfection that he has And he wants you to begin to share it even now as you live your Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit here. All right, that that gives you this basic orientation to this relationship between indicative and imperative and its importance. And in my opinion, it's practical or pastoral benevolence or helpfulness. as you think of your behavior. So we'll stop at that point right now, and you take your break, and we'll return to think about some things above. What is it to think on things above? Well, obviously not on things below. Not on the earth, or the merely horizontal vector. That wisdom of the world, wisdom of the below, wisdom of the earth, it's the wisdom that he referred to in verse 23 of chapter 2. That wisdom is bankrupt and an ultimate dead end, collapsing into depravity of soul, unleashing death and horror and terror out of its this-worldly depths, ultimately totalitarian, totalitarian urge of this depravity, which is power and will to power, to exert power over life of other few free human creatures with God-given right to life and liberty, that totalitarian urge to crush freedom, to crush the right to life to crush the right to liberty. That depravity collapsing, crushing, I say, into the ultimate tyranny, that tyranny allied with the prince of darkness, namely the tyranny of death. It is this death wish, and it is a modern distinctive of all contemporary liberalism. It is a death wish in its wretched depravity, which unleashes its totalitarian tentacles upon free image of God persons, 
and crushes them, destroys them, reduces them to nothings for the sake of their power and their exertion of power. The things below, they're ultimately a dead end. The things above, with the wisdom which is in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom are hidden in him, as the apostle says earlier in that second chapter. Notice he's contrasting the wisdom which is in Christ in verse 3 of chapter 2 with the wisdom of the world, which is in verse 23. The wisdom which seeks knowledge, understanding, affection, love for heavenly things. Things of the kingdom of heaven in which Christ dwells with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Those are the things above. Ah, Denison, that's nebulous. That's vague. That's pie in the sky, by and by stuff. It's ethereal. I think you're even being mystical. Well, what precisely are these heavenly things which it is wise for us to seek and to think about and to understand and to love? Passionately embrace and love. Now, one thing you know I'm going to do here is I'm going to return to the narrative biography of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly incarnation and his heavenly glorification. And I am going to return to the narrative interface between Christ's narrative biography, indicative, and the narrative biography of the Apostle Paul, indicative, who was joined to that narrative paradigm, Christ's narrative paradigm, united to that story, Christ's story, Paul, whose history was caught up into the redemptive historical story of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus. But then the continuing story, the ongoing story, which is the Colossian story, in like manner being united to, joined unto, participating in the never-ending story by finding their life hidden in Christ's story, in God's redemptive historical story, in Christ's story, become their own story. Now the continuing story catches us and them up into its narrative, into its drama, into the pattern of the indicative and imperative. And here we find the indicative of resurrection of Christ, which interfaces with verse 20 of chapter 2. Look back at that verse for a moment. Look at the indicative in verse 20 of chapter 2. The indicative declaring the death or crucifixion of Christ. The indicative in 3.1 declaring the resurrection of Christ. The narrative indicative declares the reality of union with the death of Christ for the Colossians, as for Paul, as for us. Even as that narrative indicative declares the reality of union with the resurrection of Christ for the Colossians, as for Paul, as for us. We begin with the facts of the indicative state. This is the reality of who you are. You belong to the cross of Christ because you died there. You belong to the empty tomb of Christ because you were raised from the dead there. 
that is fundamental to the biography, the narrative biography of Paul, as it is to Christ himself, as it is to the Colossians who are invited to come into it, draw near to it, participate in it, identify with it, possess it. Fundamental aspect of the Christian narrative is the reflection and identification of the narrative of Christ's death and resurrection with the believer's death and resurrection. A present tense identification. You have now died with Christ in his crucifixion, even as you have now been raised up with Christ in his resurrection. Union with Christ. Participation in the benefits that Christ has gained and gifted to you attaches you now to his crucifixion and resurrection, to his death and life, to his condemnation and his justification. Even now, you have died with him, being crucified together with him, and even now you have been raised from the dead with him, being resurrected in life with him. Now, you can think on those things, for they are the realities of that which is with him above. He is really dead and risen. He was really once dead, crucified, and now alive, resurrected, and glorified. You can think on those things. For the death that he died covers the death that you will yet die. And the life in which he rose in the body covers the life of your resurrection body, which it will yet live. Think on these things. Think on the present and the future, the now and not yet, the already received and yet to be fully consummated. Think on these things. Think on the heavenly aspect of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection life of the Son of God. He is nothing less than God the Son who has this History in his own life. So marvelously did he humble himself and condescend to do this for your sake and my sake and the sake of all his elect. Consider this magnificence. Consider this wonder. Consider this as you are included in it. It is your possession. It's transcendent glory. It's mark upon your soul. It's stamp and imprint upon your being. It's warmth in your heart of love. That you died with Christ and have been raised with Christ. How you love such a Savior, such a person, such a being who is none other than the Son of God the Father dwelling with the Holy Spirit. Your life hidden with Christ. Your life folded into Christ. Your life joined unto Christ. Your life concealed with Christ. Your life in him, your story in his. Set your mind and heart on these things. Seek with all your mind and heart these things. For they are the reality of heaven's world. What is it to think on these things above? Seemingly nebulous, vague, 
ethereal direction, even impractical. What's the good does it do to think of the things above? It's my everyday life that I got to think about. That's not very practical. One of those heavenly things is the arena of that world. Think on those things. It is a world of light. It is a world of eternal and everlasting light. No darkness. There is no darkness in those things above. There is never nighttime in that arena. The light of God's glory shines on all the things in that heavenly world. And that glory shines brighter than the sun. A million times more bright than the sun. More brilliant than pure gold. More brilliant than the sheerest, finest, pure gold. That glory is more brilliant than that. No lamp lights there. No lamplights. For the Lamb is the light of that world. Think on that thing. Think on Him. Think on the things above. Think of the Lamb in that glorious realm of brilliant, radiant, glorious light. Ineffable light, never-ending light, radiance which you cannot even imagine, for I has never seen such light as streams from that throne of the triune God. That will be glory indeed. What is it to think on things above? Nebulous, vague, ethereal, merely intellectual. Think on him. Him who is the image of the invisible God. Think on him who is the very reflection of God, his Father. Eternally begotten in the image and likeness of his infinite an everlasting being, think on that. Think on the Son of God, image of His invisible Father, eternal as His Father is, infinite as His Father is, God in being as His Father is, God in being distinct but not separate as His Father is. This divine Son took on the temporal for your sake. He took on the temporal for your sake, that he might transfer you to the eternal. He who was timeless bound himself to time on your behalf so as to translate you to his timeless and everlasting kingdom. Think on that. Virtually every profound Christian mind in the history of Christianity has been absolutely dumbfounded by that thought. From Athanasius to Augustine to Calvin to Jonathan Edwards, they have been absolutely dumbfounded by that thought. That God himself in the person of his Son, eternal and everlasting in his very being, would restrict himself 
to time. Restrict himself to the created world with a body. Oh, the height and depth of that wonder, that condescension, that humiliation. Can you imagine what it would be for an eternal being to humble himself to being bound by time and space? Think on that thing because that reality is the key. That incarnate reality is the key to your redemption and glorification. Think on that. This infinite Son of God, unbounded, unlimited by any space, took to himself the very limitation which you possess. He bound himself to a finite body on your behalf so that he might transfer your body to his boundless and infinite kingdom. Think on him. This wondrous Son of God above, whose riches in blessings for you run over with redemption, forgiveness, justification. They overflow in new creation, resurrection, regeneration, glorification. Think on these things which come down to you from above, seeking in your thinking and living to bear the image, mark, and stamp of that beloved above world and its beloved Son of the Father, who by the Holy Spirit has transferred you from the earth to that world above in his abundant grace and passionate love. Think on things above. Think on him who is at the right hand of God above. Think on him and the things that belong to him, for your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is it to think on these things? Specifically, as this chapter elaborates, thinking of the above world in its ethical or moral or behavioral aspect. How does that reflection, that consideration, that thinking, loving, believing, understanding impact you and me in the earthly world in which we now live? Does the not yet world, a world real and substantial in its heavenly reality, you do believe heaven is a real and substantial world, do you not? Does that not yet world exercise any influence over your moral behavior as you now live in this earthly reality? We have underscored this point before. It bears repeating and being reminded of. Do our morals now below conform to the morals of the not yet world above, the now and the not yet relationship morally in terms of ethics? Does our earthly life reflect in measure the morals and character of the heavenly life which is presently in progress? We are going to move through a careful consideration of these ethical and moral details as we move through this chapter in subsequent weeks. But let us learn the doctrine of Christian morals, the doctrine of Christian ethics from this third chapter of Colossians. 
It is a heavenly imperative reflecting a heavenly indicative. It is a heavenly moral behavior mirroring a heavenly doctrinal teaching. Christian morals, as Paul instructs us in this chapter, as God himself, through the inspired apostle, instructs us in this chapter. This is no less than God's himself, his very word, even though it's coming from the pen of the apostle Paul. Christian morals are heavenly morals. There is no immorality in the kingdom of heaven. All behavior there is holy, pure, and good. All of it. Holy, pure, and good. Paul is proceeding to teach us to behave morally now in the pattern of that heavenly moral arena. And he is doing so with a perfect balance between the indicative and the imperative. The indicative, redemptive historical narrative, heaven-oriented. The imperative, redemptive historical narrative, heaven-oriented. Seek the things above in the indicative and the imperative, for your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, I have one footnote to add to this, but before I do that, I want to give you a chance to ask any questions if you have any or make any comments if you have any. My little footnote is a reflection. Yes. God is capable of anything. I mean, he's able to do anything. Anything inconsistent with his nature. He cannot tell a lie. Well, because it's the person of the second person of the Godhead coming into the created order. Creation itself is not equal to the Son of God in his glory and being. Yes, creation is beautiful, but it is not personal. It doesn't have the warmth and personality of a human person, a human being, or even of a divine being. So the greatness of his condescension in entering the world as the incarnate Son of God is greater than his work of creation. Okay? All right, the little footnote here, which is uh, the last words in verse 3. Hidden with Christ in God. You wonder that something is missing here? Or appears to be missing. The Holy Spirit appears to be missing. So as I ponder that, I reflect myself, this is my own reflection, I reflect myself upon the nature of the Trinity again, and I return to that distinctive word for the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the other two persons of the Godhead, which is contained in the Nicene and the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is present in the Trinity Hymnal. 
but also derived from the Bible, from John 15, verse 26, where Jesus says that the Comforter who proceeds from the Father will come. The word procession and the procession of the Holy Spirit in the theology of the Trinity down through the ages ever since Nicaea itself in 325, which defined the deity of the second person of the Godhead, the deity of the Son of God against the Arians, and the Constantinopolitan Council in 321 AD, which declared the deity of the Holy Spirit, therefore the final document, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, usually just simply called the Nicene Creed, but you usually have the version which came out of the 381 Council. So the church itself, recognizing the deity of the Son and then the deity of the Holy Spirit in order to put to death, or not put to death, but to put down heretical ideas of the person, the Son of God and the Spirit of God. But using this word which comes right out of the inspired Gospel of John, the procession of the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. He comes forth from the Father and the Son. He send forth, sent forth from the Father and the Son, as John 15:26 is matched up with John 14:26, to give you a little better picture of the procession of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean then, this procession of the Holy Spirit? Well, <clears throat> with respect to the history of redemption, it's easy to understand it. He comes forth to apply the good news to the souls of God's regenerate elect. So he proceeds from the throne room of God. He proceeds from heaven to work in the world. He goes forth to accompany the preaching of the word with changing hearts, for he is the only one who has the power to turn a stony heart into one of flesh. But is his procession simply redemptive historical or is his procession also ontological? Now understand this is my own thinking. It may be that some other have reflected on it. I've not encountered it. But nonetheless, think of that inter-Trinitarian relationship. Think of the Father begetting the Son from all eternity. Think of the Son being begotten of the Father from all eternity, the Father unbegotten, the Son eternally begotten, the Spirit eternally proceeding. Think of him not proceeding out into the world, but think of him proceeding from the Father and the Son within the Trinitarian relationship, within the Trinitarian being. Is it the Spirit that weaves himself in a binding manner, in an intimately uniting manner amongst the three, the other two persons of the God, that the three of them are intertwined continually. And so that his procession is a inter-Trinitarian procession, procession as well as an extra-Trinitarian procession. So that when he, he says your life is hidden with Christ in God, He's talking about God as his triune being. The Holy Spirit understood to be in that godness. As the Son is in that godness, as the Father is in that godness. Distinguishing the two 
One might prefer to say God here is just the Father, but I'm wondering if it's more profound than that. I'm wondering if it's saying your life is hidden even with those beings who have this inter-Trinitarian life and force. And as the Spirit proceeds to unite and bind them, so he binds us to them. It doesn't mean we become as God. We'll always be creatures. But we'll be glorified creatures, wonderfully sharing in the life of God himself, which is eternal. Well, whether that interests you or not, it cost my mind as a pondering item, and so I pondered and gave you the benefit of my pondering for what it's worth. Perhaps a little bit of illumination on the word proceeds from the Father and the Son because he's proceeding within the Father and the Son and himself. Let's pray. Father, you lay out so clearly for us the wonderful relationships between what your Son has accomplished in the indicative act and what we have the privilege of responding to in the imperative obedience and submission. We do not count this obedience harsh. We count it a joy. We love you and want to keep your commandments. We want to grow in holiness and separation from sin. We want to be moral as you are moral and ethical as you are ethical. We seek to have that in us which is in you more and more as we live and grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling force and, and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So hear us. We are needy souls, Lord. We are weak. We thank you that we can understand these things now, O Lord, enable us to live them out in the balance that the apostle places here. You have been raised with Christ. You are seated in the right hand of glory on high. Your life is hidden there with Christ. So, O Lord, encourage our hearts that we are, that our life is hidden with him, your son and you by the power of the Spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen.